using beef sires on your dairy cows isn't going to hurt them. It does not have any different impact than using a purebred Holstein sire, at least on your multiparous cows. Welcome back, producers, to the Dairy Science Digest. This is a podcast designed to bring the Journal of Dairy Science straight to the ears of producers. I'm Reagan Blue from the University of Missouri Dairy Team, and today we're meeting with PhD candidate Bailey Bazile from Penn State University. And this month we're going to be talking a bit about beef on dairy. And while producers have begun to dabble in this a bit, and other producers maybe are whole hog in, this is a group of researchers here and really wanted to check out some considerations that one should make before implementing this business strategy to diversify your revenue stream. Just another fantastic land-grant university creating science around emerging topics to ensure your on-farm decisions can be science-based. So the title of this month's featured article does a really great job summarizing exactly what we're talking about today. And its title is The Impact of Beef Sire Breed on Dystocia, Stillbirth, Gestation Length, health, lactation performance of the cows that are carrying beef on dairy calves. So before we really get going, Ms. Bailey, could you please uh, introduce yourself to the audience? Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for having me today, Reagan. So my name is Bailey Bazile, and I'm a PhD candidate at Penn State, and I am now in the fourth year of my PhD working on everything beef on dairy. So I work with Dr. Chad Deckow, who's a dairy cattle geneticist, as well as Dr. Tara Felix, who is a feedlot nutritionist. And together we're researching various aspects primarily related to the genetics, but also the management of these beef on dairy cattle. Mm -hmm. um, and so my background actually is in dairy production. I did my master's with Chad as well. And my background is I, I grew up doing 4-H on a small Jersey herd. Mm. So dairy cattle have always been a, a really big part of my life. And coming into this PhD, most of the research that was proposed was focused on terminal feedlot production. Mm -hmm. So I am doing quite a bit of research with that as well. But for this paper specifically, when I joined the project, my interest was still with the dairy cows. Mm -hmm. So I decided to kind of look into the impact carrying this beef on dairy calf might have on our dairy cows. Sure. Yeah. Because it's it's such a new topic that we, we haven't really gotten a chance to look at it. But golly, looking at the futures of of where the, the beef herd is nationwide... I think dairymen are wise to really uh, hone in on this topic because we're going to be needing some more feeders here in the imminent future. And perhaps this could be a, a beautiful opportunity because of the national drought over the last couple of years to kind of tiptoe into those feedlot settings and, and really have a profound impact on the bottom line. So with that, you know, there's been this increasing interest of beef on dairy as the opportunity to increase the revenue stream. And I know there's there's been a little bit of popular press on this topic, but but I noticed that you had a fantastic uh, board-invited review recently published in the Translational Animal Science Journal, kind of 21-page document really delving into the current status of all things beef on dairy. So before we get into your data of this particular project that made me want to call you, how about we do just a, a little bit of background about where this uh, parallel industry is and, and how it's emerged over 
over time, just for a little bit of background information. Absolutely. So beef on dairy has actually hypothetically in real life as well existed for a very long time. A lot of the data that does exist that hasn't come out within the last two or three years or so came out in the 70s and the 80s when there was a lot of interest in the United States in beef on dairy, producing beef from the dairy herd. And internationally as well, in inter different international populations, they have kind of taken advantage of producing beef from the dairy herd more so than we have in the U.S. in recent years. Essentially, what happened was in 2012, we were facing fairly similar conditions to what we're facing right now in the beef cow herd, mm -hmm. where there was a drought and we were losing beef supply animals. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, in more recent years, the United States veal production really has not been very high, right? We don't have a high demand for veal in the U.S. Mm -mm. So during that time, a lot of the Holstein bull calves, the byproduct calves that were already being born on the dairy herd, were instead of going into veal production, were going into feedlot production. Mm -hmm. And that was called the calf-fed Holstein model, essentially mm -hmm. because we feed these animals since they're calves. We, we wean them like dairy calves, and then we kind of start them on this high-energy ration to get them to grow like a terminal feedlot animal. With that calf-fed Holstein model, mm -hmm. um, there were some, some pros and some cons of fed Holsteins. Some of the pros, in general, dairy calves grade very well. Mm. Dairy animals are very good at marbling. So delicious. Yes, yes. exactly. I'm, I'm sure some of the dairy producers that may have, you know, finished their own cull heifer on and off know this already, right? In my freezer right now, yes. I grew up eating some, some freezer beef from the dairy as well. Uh -huh. Um so that has always been very desirable by meat packers. However, I believe in 2017, one of the large meat packers decided they were no longer going to take Holstein carcasses. And that had to do with some of the issues related to Holstein carcasses. One of the biggest ones is that Holstein are quite large framed cattle. Meat packers were, are, many of the meat packing plants are old. The rails are lower than you would expect for a very large animal like a Holstein. And so when you're hanging a Holstein carcass on the rail and it is longer than your traditional native animal. USDA have, frowns on that, yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> you're gonna have head and neck dra uh, dragging mm -hmm. on the ground and all of that is condemned. So that's a big issue. And then there are some concerns about like ribeye shape mm -hmm. because when you, are a you know a consumer of beef products and you're going to Texas Roadhouse and picking out your steak in that case you want like a nice round ribeye and instead Holstein scenes make a triangle so there was some some you know pros and cons to that beef production and some of the carcass side of things there's been some researchers at Texas Tech doing a lot of validating how beef on dairy have overcome some of these carcass parameters. They've developed a way to, to quantify the shape of the ribeye, which is pretty cool. Awesome. The meat science side of things is constantly emerging and there's a few groups across the nation that are, are certainly out there working on the behalf of dairy producers to make sure, just like this article here, is you're going to be able to make those breeding decisions based off of sound science. It's exciting. So we've got a little bit of industry background there and, um, and I'm sure that a lot of the content of that article will kind of weave its way through what we're about ready to talk to with your Journal of Dairy Science article. Focusing in on it, this was a big old data set. What, what was it? Um, 
I have 75,000 lactations from about 40,000 cows. Over 75,000 lactations from over 39,000 cows. Can you talk to me a little bit about, you know, how did you identify these herds to use and what were some of the criteria as far as what beef breeds they were breeding to that made you interested in, in capturing their data? Absolutely. This project was kind of a spin-off of some of the data that we've been collecting on the terminal performance of these beef on dairy cattle. So a number of the herds that originally were enrolled in this study came from Pennsylvania because they were where we were sourcing the feedlot steers we were feeding out um, our beef on dairy cattle from. So those herds were pretty easy to onboard. However, in Pennsylvania, if you're not aware, Pennsylvania actually has quite a small average herd size compared to the national average. So I had a lot of herds that were a relatively small amount of cows, 150, 200, 300 cows, and a couple herds that had over a thousand as well. But obviously, I'm not going to get that proportion of data that I looked at for this study just from them. So I essentially started cold calling and cold emailing a whole lot of farmers from across the country. And I had a lot of luck with some producers, some fairly progressive producers in the Midwest. I essentially reached out. I said, I know you're progressive from X, Y, and Z. You know, they were already in some sort of popular press media coverage, which is how I found them. Asked them if they were using beef on dairy and if so, for how long, and then if they would be willing to share a backup. So with that, I ended up with records from 10 different dairy herds, and obviously mm -hmm. some of them were quite large and some of them were quite small, which was a nice way to kind of diversify my data set. You bet, absolutely. And they, they were all breeding to either Holstein, Angus, Simmental, Limousine, Charlet, Crossbred Beef, or, or Wagyu. And so really kind of looking through those different breedings and focusing in only on the multiparous herd, right? Which really was not that big of a deal because most guys are not breeding their first calf heifers to, to beef. They're going to be using that on their older cows primarily. And, and you were studying the gestation length, stillbirth risk, and dystocia risk. Let's, let's start with those before we dive into the, the health side of things. So tell me about gestation. I'm still old school and I was calculating gestation length at 283 days, you know, um, but what I learned while reading this paper that actually all these Holsteins on average calve at 277 days, um, you know, and, and these beef breedings kind of wiggle from that 277 days. Talk to me about the gestation length duration based on breed and do those few days matter? I absolutely am happy to talk about this. So, um, and just to, to add to this a little bit, when I originally proposed to do this project, gestation length was not even included in, in my proposal. Hmm. I added it while I was proposing it because we got an extension question from a producer. Yeah. And he basically said, hey, these cows aren't dropping these dang Wagyu calves. Right. Like, I, I'm inducing them after three weeks. And oh, I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. That's way so, different. Yeah. So that is, yeah, that's pretty different. And um, so to kind of verify that, right, because sometimes something happens on one farm and it doesn't happen it's everywhere. A fluke. Yeah. Um, it's a fluke. Exactly. 
I added that to what I wanted to analyze. And absolutely, yes. So whole scenes in general have a relatively short gestation length of 277 days. And when we think about other dairy cattle, we know brown Swiss are the longest, but I think that's still only 285, 83 mm. or 85, something mm -hmm. like that. So you kind of can at least predict that difference by breed. If you're milking brown Swiss, you kind of know they're going to go a little bit longer than your Holsteins. But when you start crossbreeding and adding in these beef genetics, we didn't really know what to expect. Mm -hmm. And what we found was across the board, every single beef breed that I looked at were carrying their calves for longer. So mm -hmm. for Angus sired calves, it was only a day longer and probably that doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. You don't need to alter any of your protocols, move your cows to a close-up diet one day earlier. That's probably not going to change a lot of things practically for right. dairy producers. Mm -hmm. However, when we move into particularly the limousine and Wagyu sired cattle, so yeah. limousine sired calves were being carried on average for 282 days. So mm -hmm. that's about five days longer than average. So that might impact some of your management decisions of if your cow's bred back to limine, maybe you're going to dry her off five days later in sure. the next week's dry off group. Yeah, right. Um, And kind of same thing with Wagyu. Wagyu on average, were carrying their calves for seven days longer. And I will say I did not account for any of these cows being induced because they were being carried for longer. I just used how could you? Yeah. The raw right. records. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I know at least one of the herds I was using data from were inducing those wagyu, those cows that were carrying wagyu sired calves after a couple of weeks. Wow. So there is definitely variation. And then if you actually go and read the beef cattle literature, you're like, oh, I see why that is now. Um, mm. We don't have a ton of data on American Wagyu cattle because they're still a relatively new breed in the United States. But if you look I at see. Japanese black literature, which is the equivalent of a Wagyu in Japan, right? their average gestation length is 291 days. Holy cow. That makes no sense way. why those calves are being carried a little bit longer than yeah. the Holstein. They, something is happening developmentally and they, they need that longer gestation length. <laughs> Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's incredible. And, um, and I'm glad that you brought up the dry off considerations because we know, especially even in the close-up diet, that that close-up diet can be quite costly, you know, and if you could resist the, the extra cost for an extra five days and, and even capture more milk for another week, then that on both ends of that equation, you're going to be money ahead. So that's really insightful information, depending on on how you're you're basing your breedings. So we know now that there's there's a few of these beef breeds that generate a slightly longer gestation length, but but does that really translate into an increased stillbirth risk problem or dystocia problem? Nope, not yes. really. So that is that is the good <laughs> news is even though these cows are are holding on to their calves a little bit longer and we know that gestation lengths normally in purebred Holstein on Holstein matings, if your cow is going to deviate a lot in her gestation length, that might cause more issues with stillbirth and dystocia. We did not really see that in our data. We did That's see fantastic. for stillbirth, there was a slight increase in risk of stillbirth with cows that were mated to crossbred beef bulls. So those are bulls with the NAAB breed code of XB 
to specify. I think certain studs are marketing those bulls for beef on dairy matings, which is why they made it into the data set. Mm. There was a slightly higher risk there. However, there still was a lot of variability around those predictions. So I wouldn't take that as solid cement that crossbred beef are definitely going to increase your rate of stillbirth. We just saw that in the data set that we had. I want them to to realize if they have read something and were scared by it, you know, to not be scared. Yes. Guys, don't don't be scared to try this technology. It's it's hardly even technology, right? We were doing this back in the 60s and 70s and um and there's a market for it right now that's emerging or has emerged and you don't want to be left behind. This is a fantastic way to um improve the genetic base of your herd in addition to cash flow. And we can all use a little more cash flow. Absolutely. Good. And that was a, a huge impetus for me wanting to investigate this in the first place. Yeah. Because we've got to we've got to help that. Yeah. All right. So so we've talked about gestation length. We got nothing to worry about there. And and just because they hang on to those calves a little bit longer, it doesn't translate to too much stillbirth issues because those big old mature cows just spit them out. And but how about health? You know, let's say we've got this big calf. Is there any health concerns? Does it mess with retained placentas or um, any sort of metritis issues? What what did you see in the health data for those first couple months of, of milk? So in, in the health data, we found pretty much nothing is the easiest way to say that. Um, so I broke, I broke health events down into all sorts of different categories. I looked at lameness, mastitis, metabolic events. So like your, your ketosis or your DAs, I looked at reproductive events. So again, that's not, did she breed back after it was, did she have a retained placenta or issues with metritis? Mm -hmm. And then I looked at, at anything that was, you know, kind of fell out of those categories as well as just the risk of having any kind of health event during those first 60 days in their lactation after calving, because that's really when they're at the highest risk to experience health events. Mm -hmm. And essentially, there was no difference in those cows that had had beef-sired calves of any breed and those that had had Holstein-sired calves. So that, that was generally really good news. It means these cows that even if there's there was... The concern was maybe something was going on subclinically, even if they didn't have clinical dystocia or something, but mm -hmm. it does not appear that that is the case. So these beef-sired calves really are not in any way health-wise hurting your cows, which is, I think, great news when you think about the added value of the beef on dairy calf. Okay, so we've talked about health events. What about production? Did you see anything in fluid volume, components being fat and protein? Not a thing. So again, just just good proof that that beef on dairy is not negatively impacting our cows. And when we looked at fat and protein yield as pounds per day or milk yield from using our test date records, so a good reason to be on D DHIA test if you are, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because we can analyze things like that. Again, it was good that we saw nothing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Because in the end, what you're trying to do is ship white stuff down the road. And those of you that are paid on the fluid side of things, you, don't, you got nothing to worry about. And those of you paid on components, sounds like that's good too. So good deal. 
Yeah, it's it's really refreshing to know that that you're embarking in that parallel industry that's not going to hold things back. Because in the end, you're trying to make milk, right? You're dairy farmers. You're not. You're kind of beef producers, but you're just trying to make milk, and you certainly don't want to do anything that's going to negatively impact that aspect of it. And so it's pretty important detail. Very good. So it's always interesting as I as I highlight all these different articles each month. Um, most of the time, I'm trying to encapsulate all these big changes or big effects. Uh, but in this situation, no effect is exactly what we wanted to see, right? And so we want to feature the fact that, yeah, just plunge right in, try this out guys, and make sure you're working with your studs as they've been working in close collaboration with many folks to ensure that the semen that's in the tank is the most ideal for for the market. Don't just breed her to some black-eyed beef animal. With the growing number of beef on dairy matings, what do you think might be some good steps for next research or records that you want guys to be collecting if they do choose to embark in this so that so that we can have the appropriate genetic assessments going forward to ensure that that this keeps having a positive trajectory? Absolutely. So I do think in general, good, good record management. I cannot emphasize enough for the folks that are doing genetic evaluations at the Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding. The better records you are keeping, more good data they can take out of that and turn that into genetic evaluations. What I'm really hoping this paper is, is kind of a blueprint for those that do genetic evaluations to potentially be able to do a beef on dairy dairy cow trait genetic evaluation, essentially, because we have PTAs on cows for things like gestation length and for dystocia. Ah, that'd be so great. So we have that for our dairy sires. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very possible that the folks that are doing the dairy genetic evaluations could evaluate those for beef on dairy sires. Mm, I believe you interviewed Dr. Taylor McWhorter of probably a few years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. And just as a reminder of who she is, she wrote a paper on beef on dairy that had to do with developing PTAs for beef bulls on reproductive events, essentially mm-hmm. seeing if if these beef bulls were, were impacting reproduction. So um, sire conception rate kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And she found that there was enough genetic variation that we could be doing evaluations on them as well. You bet. And and for those of you listening in that want to listen to that one, uh, shameless plug, I'll go ahead and put a clickable link in the in the show comments for that one. That was a great interview. And also another interview kind of that keeps running through my mind was with the Asha Miles there with ARS. So the USDA research geneticist that was tracking embryo transfer. So maybe some of you listeners out there are doing beef on dairy and embryos, or maybe putting even in full beef embryos, rather as, as your breeding procedures. And in that situation, that was, that was yet this year. And um, she had some really interesting comments too. There's all kinds of just different emerging opportunities to explore, especially with those bottom 25% of your cows. You want to freshen them back in. You want to get them back into the milking string. You know they're going to be milk trucks for you, uh, but but you just don't necessarily want a heifer out of them. So there's lots of different opportunities and solutions to to get their their milk back in the tank without without perpetuating their genetic base. 
You know, one of my favorite questions that I always like to ask at the end, um, what do you think you would like boots on the ground dairy producers to really gain from this, from all the analysis of, of the data that you did? Really, I think it was pretty much what I, I wrote, even my conclusion in this paper, is that more or less using beef sires on your dairy cows isn't going to hurt them. It, it does not have any different impact than using a purebred Holstein sire, at least on your multiparous cows. I will say there could be some room to look at some first calf heifers. I do know in some of those more progressive herds that are really, really pushing all sect semen and all beef semen. They're not using any conventional semen. So, you know, if a heifer doesn't get bred in the first breeding to, to sext, she's going to beef. So maybe Oof. for those herds, it might be a little bit different. I couldn't tell you yet, but hopefully yeah. we'll know that one day as well. Yeah, that's the beauty of, of being a dairy scientist is that you never run out of questions and the best questions to answer come directly from dairy producers. So guys listening in, don't, don't hesitate to call us up and say, Hey, I got a question. You know, just like you were saying that that gestation length question came from the field and now we know, and we can't know what, what questions you have unless you ask. Well, Bailey, this has been very informative, and I, I thank you so much for your time. And listeners out there, I applaud you for taking time out of your day to learn more about how this parallel industry can maybe help you diversify your on-farm income stream. I've really enjoyed our conversation. This has been the December edition of the Dairy Science Digest. It's a monthly podcast project designed to bring the Journal of Dairy Science straight to your ears. We highlight peer-reviewed research articles in press. It's sound science that you can base your management decisions around provided to you by your University of Missouri dairy team. So please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to get future editions straight to your cell phone. This has been Reagan Blue with the Dairy Science Digest, and I hope you have a great day. Mm -hmm.